I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Welcome back. Back in 2021, when I was doing the tour of Scary Smart, I sort of felt a little bit of a sense of urgency. I think a lot of people realize why that is now, with AI being really the central topic of conversation around many things. And Scary Smart was predicting a lot of what's happening right now and asking for a call to action. So I really pushed myself when I was publishing that book. I did, if I remember correctly, a series of 25 podcasts in less than two weeks, one after the next, after the next. And basically there were days where two or three podcast recordings where I was the guest would pop up in my calendar and I would show up and start to have a conversation. And some of those conversations went really far. You know, the Stephen Bartlett podcast, for example, was extremely successful, several millions of downloads, and it was the most shared uh, podcast globally in the entire world uh, back in 2022. Lots of memorable conversation happened within those two weeks period, but one very specific podcast actually stood out in my mind because I didn't pre-plan any of this. I, you know, my calendar would tell me to show up at some place or a Zoom call and I would show up and there I am. And in front of me is a very, very flamboyant, very artistic, clearly queer a host that actually was hosting the one of the top 100 shows in spirituality in the US, which is a podcast called Sassy Spirituality. And Sassy Spirituality is basically a spiritual show talking about spiritual topics. And I was very surprised, and I think the host was as surprised. And yet we had the most incredible conversation ever. A conversation that went back and forth between AI and spirituality and how we can use some of the knowledge that we see here to actually revisit some of our spiritual beliefs and teachings. And so, you know, I really liked the host, Saad Simon, and I said to myself when my podcast was big enough, I was going to host Saad and have a conversation with him about some of what we spoke about during his podcast. Go back and listen to it if you have a chance. It was really a very interesting view of AI. Anyway, it turns out that Sa, just so that you know how uh, uninformed I am, has close to half a million followers on Instagram. He is an artist, a mystic, spiritual teacher. He is a best-selling author, and of course, he's a top-rated podcast host. He actually invented or created a method that was called the Sa method, which is somatic activated healing, that was very, very supportive by Deepak Chopra, who went on to call him a radical spiritual teacher. Sa has a very strong belief that joy and authenticity are truly on the path to enlightenment. He tries to advocate that healing 
comes from within, it comes from connecting to our bodies, and that you can be whoever you are and be spiritual and be a spiritual teacher and be a seeker in many ways. Sah has published another book recently, the book called Sassy Spirituality, as you can imagine, uh, the eight radical steps to activate your innate superpower. I have been waiting for this conversation for quite some time because I believe that Sah actually radiates what he advocates, joy and authenticity. I hope you will enjoy this conversation. I know I will. Uh, Sah de Simone. It's been such a long time. I have been waiting for this since 2021, man. Come on. Don't oh, really? play hard to get. Really? Oh my goodness. I'm, <laughs> I just found out about it, to be honest. I think the team was sheltering me from overdoing, but I would have said yes to this right away. Oh my goodness. I'm honored. Oh, it's been, it's been uh, on my mind. I have to admit, since our conversation, I don't know if you recall the time when we did... Um, uh, artificial intelligence and we were we were both caught off guard it's like why is this guy here <laughs> it's like why are we talking <laughs> about ai and, yeah. and you know and i was like okay spiritually sassy that's really not the topic that's not what i'm here to talk about today <laughs> but it was so yeah. much fun and you're such a wonderful human i absolutely uh i i would say it was one of my favorite conversations around Scary Smart ever, actually. Oh, thank you, darling. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, you blew my mind. You opened my world to a whole nother way of thinking about artificial intelligence and like looking at technology. And I think a lot of people in my community felt the same. And they were like, oh, shit. so we really do have to do this thing and like not be afraid <laughs> exactly. of it. So yeah, thank you yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 I, I actually have to say you also blew my mind. I think one of the, of the things that I was asked for the very first time when we had that conversation was the, uh, was the, you know, the link really between spirituality and intelligence and what is creation then if we have machines that are created by us, but that are almost, I would probably say totally sentient in every possible way. So Interesting times, my friend, interesting times. Uh, yeah, I mm -hmm. here navigating life and it's full. Life is very full. That's really what I'm I would best. agree, sir. Do you feel that? I feel there is something, there is something in this last six to eight months, I would say, where, yeah, it, it feels like, you know, there is a river stream against every one of us it's a little bit more difficult isn't it mm -hmm. i mean yes and personally my mom died i'm so um, sorry i didn't know yeah, thank you thank you when? so it's been um she died december 25th uh 2022 oh. so it's very recent you know and i when she we went i mean to kind of make a long story short um I was in a 30-day silent retreat in Nepal, in Kathmandu, um, halfway through the retreat. Um, actually, a week before going to the retreat, I had all these um, panic attacks, which I haven't had in like eight years. And then I had conjunctivitis twice, and which I've, I don't remember ever having it, maybe when I was a, you know, a, a young boy. So I had all these like physiological symptoms kind of pointing to something really 
really bad was going to happen, really tragic was going to happen, or it was happening, you know, in retrospect, looking back, it was the connection that I have with my mom is very deep. So my body was already sort of showing me that like things, my view of the world would change the way I felt about myself and in my body would change. So halfway through the retreat, I I'm like, I can't be in this retreat. I have a feeling something bad's happening with my mom, although she's been sick for four years. So it wasn't like, um, it was a surprise because, you know, you stay hopeful when, you know, I worked yeah. so hard to provide uh, her all these holistic treatments and all these different, um, you know, healing modalities all over. The next thing she was going to do was a treatment in Switzerland. We were scheduled, pay the deposit for her to be there in January. Uh, so maybe six or seven days before she was about to embark on that journey, she died. Um, but essentially halfway through the retreat, I started having these awful feelings and um, and I'm feeling really disconnected from my body, really disconnected from my body. Almost like I'm I'm watching my life, but feeling like it's not my life. You know, to if you're talking oh, to wow. a, a therapist and if they're going to pathologize that feeling, they may say it's a derealization or depersonalization, uh, you know, dissociation, essentially. Um, it was, so it was really difficult to navigate that and... And then I, I left there thinking, okay, it's something wrong with me. I need to go take care of myself. I shouldn't be in this austere environment of a monastery in Nepal right now. It wasn't the first time I've done a long retreat. So it wasn't, it wasn't a new thing for me. But then I go to Bali. I'm traveling with my partner and my sister and I and my partner were at the retreat together. But then we leave my sister at the monastery and me and Ben go off to Indonesia, to Bali, I can dance there. I can eat really good food. I can chant the names of God. I can meditate. I can be in a really beautiful, you know, safe environment, very conducive for the practice. A few days there, I was like, why am I here? I should be next to my mom. So, oh yeah, you feel it now very, very I was, clear. Now it was just like more alive than ever. And then, you know, my dad and my brother aren't sharing like the entirety or the profundity of the situation that they're in, how critical things are. So I book a ticket for, for Saturday and this is like maybe Wednesday. And I'm like, oh mom, I'm, I'm going to be there Saturday. Can't wait to see you. I'm still talking to her like this on FaceTime, you know? And then that Wednesday was the last time I talked to her ever. Yeah. So, and then arriving in Brazil, um, she was in an induced coma. So then she wasn't coherent in a ways that I'm used to talking to her. So she waited. There was a blessing in there. It's not all a blessing. It's not all filled with like meaningful spiritual experience. No, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the thick of it still. I'm really angry and devastated and heartbroken and disillusioned and questioning my doctrine and just questioning pretty much everything. So it's a good time to talk to me because I'm raw and open, you know? Um, so you always have been when we spoke, Sa, so. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's true. I think it's, I think something that has happened with my mom's death, it's no tolerance for bullshit. I think I used to tolerate shit a little bit and people and experiences and things. And, and now it's just like, I have zero tolerance, you know? Is she your first dear loss? Like, you know, did you yeah, lose it? That's oh right. Oh my God. Yeah. And my mom wasn't, I understand that this is a rare thing that I had with my mom. I think 
she was my best friend. I talked to her like three times a day. It wasn't like, a, I'll talk to mom once a month or like, see you at Christmas. It wasn't like that at all. It was just like, I feel like I lost a leg. So I'm just like learning to walk again without a leg. So it's, um, it's um, to say the very least, it's I am navigating tremendous paradox right now. You know, how can I still be here and inspired to talk to you, someone that I look up to that I'm inspired by, while still tending to my broken heart? You know, how can I see beauty in the world around me while still being really disillusioned and heartbroken? So it's this ongoing paradox that I'm living in, which is opening me up to, to understand myself and the world in a whole new way, you know? So that's what's going on. <laughs> that is a lot. I mean, I don't know, Ali, my son left us nine years ago, eight years ago now, 2014. I remember you telling me about it. And it, it just doesn't go away, Sa. It's, it's quite interesting, huh? This kind of, I miss him. It just doesn't go away. So the way you describe your mom being your best friend, your ally, your... For me, Ali was my best friend. He was my ally, he was my coach. And you describe that you lost a, a leg and learning to walk. I promise you, I feel a missing part right here, bottom right side of my heart. And it's physical. I went to a lot of holistic healers. I don't go, but you know, I know quite a few of them. And they say, yes, there is a trapped emotion or a trapped energy in that place of your body. Yeah, it just doesn't go away. It really yeah. doesn't. What is, your, uh, what is your view of death? What is death? I mean, see, this is, this is the part that I'm like questioning my doctrine, you know, as being a Buddhist coming up to 10 years, you know, growing up Catholic and then changing my religion and adopting an entire new path. This question comes with like so much. Oh yeah, it is it's the question. It's so loaded, it it's so question, big, and yeah. it's also so juicy, right? I think with my mom's death, sometimes I like to adopt the Christian view more than the Buddhist view, to be very honest with you, because I rather think that she is fully healed, liberated with her mom, her dad, her brother, her friends who've passed in this beautiful heavenly realm. I like that view and that view brings me comfort. However, in the doctrine that I have adopted and studied and practiced in, it says that 49 days after she died on this plane, she is reincarnated somewhere else. So we, as part of the me, my sister, my partner, my dad, and my brother, we're all here on the 49th day. We are here, I mean, Santa Monica, California. We all went out to the ocean and did a, um, you know, a ritual, prayed over over these flowers and offered them to the ocean. It's a little bit more, more complicated than that, but that in short, we just um, did a ritual on the 49th day, praying for her rebirth to be at a higher realm, to be at a um, where her conditions in the next life are more developed for liberation, that she may become a Buddha, that she may be completely free and so I'm navigating like doing that ritual and then having this part of me like being like, mm, I don't believe in this, but I'm still doing it because who are we to say that that's not the path or this is the path? Are the Christians who hold the high truth or are the Buddhists who hold the truth? Who Nobody are we to does. say who holds the truth? Yeah. So I'm in this like difficult place where um, I am just kind of doing everything and just adopting more of a um, sort of uh, philosophical view Beautiful. You know, instead of having this or that. And then 
on top of all of that, like the guru that I took refuge with in Nepal um, in 2014, Lama Zopa said to one of his disciples, someone who's really close to us, my sister and I, said that she is reborn in a pure land. So she's like considered for perhaps the Christian doctrine, more like an angel realm or 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 the Ooh. realm of, of the gods, you know? So that was nice to hear. That was like really nice to hear. I did talk to a medium maybe a month after my mom died. And it was very real that my mom was there because I was, for those of you who are on video, you could see my shirt during the medium session was closed like this. So you couldn't tell that three days earlier, I hadn't gotten my mom's tattooed right here on my chest. So the fact that my mom was telling the medium through that mediumship uh, call that I like what what's she's like the medium is, is translating what my mom is saying and the way she was translating she's like there's something carved there's something painted in this area she's saying that she's really she really likes it and I was like oh no and that's when I started crying and wailing because I was like okay it's mom there really because it was you know her name's here with so. To kind of round this up, I think we have to make up our own view of what happens after death. I think we have to find a, a doctrine, a path that, that we relate to. I think if yeah. the religion you adopted doesn't land, then find something else. I found that to be very interesting in my own past, so be, because my my life, I was born a Muslim and I became very religious at a young age. And then I sort of proclaimed myself agnostic and then did what I understand. The only thing I understand is mathematics. So I worked on that, what I call the math of the divine, basically, which got me to a conviction that there is something out there. It's not a belief because remember, there is a higher power. Of course, that higher power is non-physical. So we don't really, whoever tries to describe it to you, whichever religion tries to describe it to you, at the two extremes, you know, Christianity would describe it as a created man in his liking, or, you know, at the other extreme, the Buddhists will say it's emptiness and deities and so on. Neither of them can know for a fact because it's a non-physical entity and all of our perception is only physical, right? But having said that, I, I ventured out. And that event for me was sort of an, a liberation because, you know, being in a Muslim community is quite a bit conformative. So if you let yourself out of the confinement, if you want, and then allow yourself to debate and discuss, I just continued to debate all the way, right? I, I said, so now I know there is a something bigger than us, but did it talk to us? Did it communicate? Is is the, is what you, what it communicated? Is it you know the Quran in Islam? Is it the Quran only? Are there other messages? And then I went on and studied all of them, like literally everything I could put my hand on. I think there has been two topics in my life that I never studied more. One was time as part of physics, and the other was spirituality in general. And I'll tell you, every one of them has so many beautiful nuggets of wisdom, but every one of them has clear, clear examples of, whoops, this doesn't sound right, okay? And so accordingly, when people ask me, what do you believe in? I say, well, I follow a religion called the fruit salad, right? Which basically is, if I give you a basket of oranges that has 
12 oranges in it, two are amazing and 10 are rotten, you don't, whatever the ratio, I don't mean two to 10, you don't throw the two good ones. You still keep the two good ones and then you get a couple of apples and a couple of bananas and you make an amazing feast uh, of all of the beautiful core nuggets of wisdom. And so I, I'm, I'm talking too much, but you know, I, I found I love it. I love it. I'm like, please, yes. And it's very on brand for you to study everything and like know the ins and outs of everything, which is so wonderful about you. Because honestly, Asai, if you think about it, studying one of them only is a form of ego. Have you ever thought of it this way, right? It's like if I define myself as a Buddhist or if I define myself, and, and I'm not against anyone who does that because there is so much beauty in each of them, then by definition, you've associated yourself with one ego, one form of identification. And I think the idea is, no, I am a seeker. I want to find in every one of them beautiful wisdom. Anyway, let's go back to reincarnation because my brain works as a physicist, okay? And as a physicist, I struggle with the idea of chronological lives for one simple reason, which is the absence of time. Do you understand that? So when we look at time in our physical form, we're governed by what is known as the arrow of time, right? 1990 is earlier than 2023. That's the arrow of time. Now, when you leave your physical form and you're out there in your spiritual form, which obviously is not part of this physical world, otherwise, you know, again, from physics, you wouldn't have the ability to perceive time at all if you were stuck in time. The reason why we perceive time is our consciousness resides outside space-time. Now, if you think about that, then the idea of several lives becomes quite interesting. Why? Because how can you have several lives when all of space-time is one time? Do you understand that? For your, for your non-physical form, there is no before and after. There is no, I can come as Sa and then come again as, you know, the president of the United States, which you qualify for. But there is no that, you know, that doesn't happen in chronological order. So I sort of park the idea of reincarnation as what I call compartment two. I can't prove for and I can't prove against. And, mm -hmm. and by the way, does it matter? She's happy either way. You know what I mean? So, so in my mind, is if Ali came back, I'm sure he came back as a wonderful human being or a wonderful something, right? Yeah. If he didn't, then I'm sure he's in a nice place because he was a wonderful human, right? So in an interesting way, is it relevant? I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. I mean, it's very difficult to prove for or against any of it, but all yeah. of it is okay, I think. I'm with you too. I mean... I feel like the the reincarnation the reincarnation um thing has like brought some degree of like refuge for me in the past, you know. Um like thinking about, you know, previous versions of me and reasons why I suffer in this way and that way and why I, you know, like thinking like from a from a spiritual perspective, we are under the influence of like the trauma that has been unprocessed in our family tree from a spiritual slash, you know, Eastern Buddhist uh, Vedic perspective, we are under the influence of our past lives. So kind of navigating, like, what am I under the influence of? I'm under the influence of a lot of pain, a lot of trauma, a lot of violence, a lot of abuse, a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff that hasn't been processed. So I, 
I was like, okay, so it's really up to me to kind of like do the thing, to kind of end the cycles, to be the curse breaker, to be the one who kind of ends the cycles of, of suffering that has perpetuated in the previous processes that we call, that we now call Sa. But I don't know, you, I mean, the, your view of all this is it's way more intricate than mine. I kind of go with the, with the kind of heart. Oh, yeah. That's, I'm that's like, the I lead part. with that. Yeah, that, I lead with that. And... I can guarantee you that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is all you've, you've, you're known for, huh? The idea that the heart will lead, I think, is, is wonderful. I mean, it, it takes a physicist like me or a mathematician like me quite a bit of time to let that happen. Even though, of course, in my older years, I think most people who've interacted with me, especially if they interacted with me in person, they would, they would simply say, I'm, I'm all love, basically, that, that I'm all heart. Yeah, I have a very annoying physicist mind up there, but uh, but yeah, it's just in the background now. So what, what would you wish for? I mean, I'm talking to you because, believe it or not, I rarely come across someone who I know will enlighten me with something about my own loss, okay? I've studied this deeply, but but you seem to have an intuitive connection that's outside us. So... What would you hope for? I'll tell you openly, you will feel the pain for quite some time. I, I probably believe you will feel the less pain, but you'll feel the pain of missing her for the rest of your life. So what would be, what would be a dream scenario for you December 25th next year? Ah, good question. I mean, look, my biggest struggle right now is, and I might get emotional, start crying. It's absolutely my biggest okay. struggle right now. It's uh, just forgiving the doctors and the nurses and um, for how they treated my mom during the last few uh, days and hours of her life. And then that's a big thing that kind of takes space from when I'm about to fall asleep. And as soon as I'm waking up, the two times that I really have practiced uh, diligently to arrive at waking up open and inspired for the day uh, and going to sleep less rigid and contracted. But those two times are the times where I get flooded with these um, painful memories. They're very textured. I notice my body contracting and I notice my, my breath becoming shallow. It isn't a pleasant experience at all. So I hope that through the grief process, I allow the grief to wash some of this anger and this like punitive approach that I have that I want those doctors to suffer. I want those nurses to oh, suffer. Wow. You know, this like, yeah. it's the prison industrial complex is in our psyches, you know, like we, anyone hurts us, we unconsciously want to hurt them back or we do this in our minds, right? It's like, we are constantly punishing each other in very subtle or explicit ways. So I have this kind of thing in my mind where it's this punitive uh, monster that wants those who, who didn't take care of my mom the ways I thought that she needed to be cared for need to suffer. So I'm navigating this, uh, releasing this punitive approach, enter into a restorative approach. I'm navigating, uh, making peace with those memories. And what do I hope for? I hope that I that I get to continuously uh, learn from the daily grief, from the moment to moment grief of not having my mom there, someone that like supported me from, from day one. And I do hope that she will communicate with me, you know, she more will. and more. I hope that, 
I hope that she will speak to me through the birds, through the sun, through the wind, through strangers. I hope that she will leave me messages and I'm going to be walking through a bookstore and a book's going to fall out of the shelf and it's going to open at this exact page with these exact, exact words highlighted there that were the exact words that her and I would communicate with each other. I'm just hoping for the unseen world to make itself known to me in a way that I know that my mom's still here with me. So that's my hope. And what happens when I die, maybe I, I, I want the Christian view where I am with her in heaven for eternity. Or another one, this is all the layers of it, right? You ask me this question, so I'm giving you the entire view. And, and the other one is that perhaps in a few years, I'm going to run into this like, you know, young little uh, person and it's, I'm going to see my mom in that person. And then I'm going to get this really deep heart knowing that that is the reincarnation of my mom. And I get to see Patricia in a new form again, you know, because even when I walked into the, into the hospital, I did all the ritual things because I'm holding the belief that, that it's, possible and that the you know that there's more to life than what meets the eye so i don't know it's a lot of it's a lot of all of this stuff that sounds poetic and interesting and intriguing and then also just a lot of i don't know a lot of like being at the edge being at the edge and just like not knowing like and i'm just there you know kind of there i hope that your your grief will turn into love I uh, I have rarely met someone who's more capable of love. And it seems to me that this is not an interruption of your cycle. This probably is more an acceleration of your cycle. Yeah, I'm sorry for what they did, the doctors and the nurses. I really am. I think we shared that story. But uh, it seems sometimes that... Uh, that a journey needs to be continued. And there is that separation when someone gets on the train that starts a new story. I'm, I really, I really, really, really hope that when we talk the next time, hopefully it won't be the, the end of the year, but when we talk the next time, that you will have multiplied more of you through that experience. It seems to me, sir, that you've always been a mystic in a very unusual, you call yourself an artist, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah, right, that's the, uh, you know what a, a traveling dervish is mm -hmm. in, in Sufism? You know, it's basically someone who takes a very, very, very unusual path through life, uh, choices, and they don't do it because of ego, they do it for liberation. So basically to leave all of the norms behind. I don't know if, you've, if you'd be open to tell me a little bit how you ended up where you ended up. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. How did I end up here? Wow. Well, in short, I'll start at a moment of rock bottom because that was a, a it's kind of, it was a kind of a, a very um, influential moment in my life. I had started this uh, international fashion magazine with a couple friends. And I really thought I was like, oh my God, I found the thing that I want, I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. I, I felt like I accomplished the American dream, right? Working with celebrities, making art every day, going to these shoots, traveling, looking at these beautiful clothes, like selecting who we're going to put in the magazine. It was this really amazing creative process that I loved. 
And meanwhile, throughout the whole process, I was, you know, drinking every day, which is very sort of, sort of, no, it's very normal in our culture to a couple glasses of wine and maybe a couple beers. And you get a little high here and a little, you know, bump of Coke there. And like, you kind of just go through life. And it's, it's very sort of a normalized in the culture that I was in, in New York City and fashion. And still inside like crumbling with like the 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 highs of anxiety and the lows of depression and the background noise of my inner world was always shame meaning there's something fundamentally wrong with me how could i distract myself from feeling these feelings how could i distract myself from giving in fully to this narrative that i am fundamentally bad so therefore i should not be here so i built my life around distracting myself from feeling and I, I built it in such a skillful way that people outside really thought I had done a great job. I'm 24 years old. I'm I'm on Forbes. I'm on this, blah, 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 all this like, you know, stuff that looking back, I'm like, oh, poor thing. Trauma response is really <laughs> working for you. You know, good job, trauma responses. The world thought you did it. You were doing it. You were okay. So I just give this kind of like psychological and somatic awareness of my inner world just so you understand the the depth of the rock bottom. So now fast forward to December, excuse me, November 22nd, 2012. So end of 2012, I think there was a lot of um, tribal cultures saying that that was yeah. the end of the calendar year, meaning something the world's going to end. I mean, a variety of different things. But that day, my business partner and best friend decides to buy me out of the company that I invite her to be part of. So it was the heartbreak was like enormous. And so I leave fashion and I try to get a job. I was like, oh my God, I've given jobs to so many people. I've like collaborated with so many people around the around this industry. So I try to I try to get another job in the fashion industry as a creative director. And no, 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 so many no's, nothing was coming up, nothing was happening. So I said, you know what? Excuse me, F this. I'm going to go to Florida, be close to my parents and kind of like reassess. So I get this little house in um, Madeira Beach, like a, an hour from Tampa, Florida. And that's when I started to research. What is happiness? What is well-being? Uh, what's the purpose of human life? And I started to research these very simple things that are kind of like the driving force of our life. But I have to be fully honest, up until I was 27, I never once thought to question, is money happiness? Is success in this exact way that I'm living happiness? Am I, am I happy? But, you know, never really had this like depth of self-inquiry to question the structures that were imposed onto me as an immigrant, as a person of color, as a queer person, da, 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 the layers and layers and layers, right? So it was that year, 2013, that I started questioning and, and researching. And then 2014, spring of 2014, I go to India, to north of India, to Dharamshala. And, yes. Um, but before going to Dharamshala, I, was, I had this whole plan of study with like South Indian gurus, South Indian saints. And then my dad walks into the house and says, you should go to the north. You should study Buddhism with the Dalai Lama. He lives in this little town. And I was like, Dad, what do you know? You know, we've never had like, he's never uh, spoken to me about religion in this way or spirituality in this way at all. So it was kind of like, okay. But I went in 2014 and then did one 10-day silent retreat in McLeod Gunge, this little village where His Holiness lives. And that just 
cracked me open. You know, I, I heard this fundamental truth that we have this basic goodness that this unborn mind as uh, Caverly uh, Morgan was in a podcast recently, this Zen teacher, and she spoke about the unborn mind. I was like, wow, that, what a great term, this this untouchable aspect of, of our beings that is benevolent and always good and peaceful and at ease and joyful and wise. So hearing that, but out of all these, you know, beautiful words, the one that really struck me was like, we are benevolent beings at the core of our beings. We are basically fundamentally good. And it was something that I needed to hear because as I said earlier, like shame was like such a big curriculum in my life and feeling like something fundamentally wrong was at the base of my being. So hearing that was, was massive. And then another big thing that happened was meditating on our own death and doing like a, a, a three day, it wasn't a three long days, but it was like three evenings meditating on, on our own death. And that really propelled me to, to just question and, you know, really look like, am I dying filled with regrets? Have I made amends? Have I learned to forgive? What is forgiveness? Can I forgive? Am I, do I need to engage with that? Have I lived the life that I want to live? And all those big questions came, you know, flooding into that. And through that process, I was like, oh my God, I think I found the thing that I'm supposed to be doing is like, this is it. So I did later that year, I did a 30 day silent retreat, the same one that I was just doing uh, in this past December in 2022. And then during that 30 days, when I took refuge and I really like bought into this view with the premises that if I take refuge and I follow these vows, uh, no lying, no stealing, no killing, blah, 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 all these, like some of these seem very simple, but it's really kind of like edgy to like not lie not put people down, not put yourself down, not gossiping and stealing isn't just the stealing of things. It's like there is a this energetic, the psychological stealing that happens so often between friends and between communities. So questioning all of that and having that that uh, view, I said, okay, if I if I do all this and my life changes for a year, then I'm gonna keep going on this path. But if it doesn't, I'm gonna go back. And I'm, a, I'm just going to like go back to the old ways because that was at least some vengeance. fun, you know? Yeah, it yeah. was at least fun, you know? And I looked, I looked, in my mind, I looked good doing it. So that's the kind of journey it was like 2013 and 2014. And then, you know, have gone back to India eight or nine times and kind of, you know, just kind of kept going back and traveling to that part of the world. Keep wanting to do different things, but that part of the world just keeps calling me to like, there's more here to learn. And, and so... That's kind of how it happened. And yeah, that's essentially, and then came back to New York, like being in and out of India for about two and a half years, that first time, 2016, the fall of 2016. And then it kind of just happened really quickly. I was very honest in, on social media about like my struggles with suicidal ideation, with depression, with addiction, with anxiety, all the demons that were visiting me and then me befriending them and learning from them and 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 you know having tea with them befriending or whatever them. language befriending them that's such an interesting word well cuz they're we we have to right cuz if they're visiting us it's like this the sufi poet says a rumi if they're here they they're here with a message and if we push them away we are saying no to a guest that we have invited to our house and it's oh, like wow. really massive to think about like 
these feelings that visit us that feel really like a demon. They're so hard to be with. They're so hard to process and engage and look at. What if we open up to the view that they have been sent, that they have been invited by us and they might have just come at the wrong time in our view, right? But what if we treat every feeling that visits us as a guest that we have genuinely sat down and written an invitation to them to come have tea at our house? So that was what the process was like. It was like a really big, vulnerable share. People on social media felt like they were reading my journal because that's what it was. I, I think putting stuff out there for me at that point was keeping myself accountable to being liberated and and opening myself up to change. And so that's kind of how um, how it happened. And then one thing led to another, you know, you, you get asked to write a book and you get asked to do this. And then, you know, it's just all kind of a kind of goes from there. It's going well. I mean, when you really think about it. It's going really well, surprisingly well, and also so wild to have responsibility to this to this uh, level, you know, where it's really wild to have this amount of responsibility to help people. I, 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 don't, I don't think of it as responsibility at all, as a matter of fact. I mean, I struggled with that for a very long time, believe it or not. And now I'm like, no, it's a gift. I think we both agree. Mm right, uh, to, to find a path to, to somehow just make one person, you know, one person feel better. That's amazing, right? And, and then I realized at a point in time that perhaps I'm just relaying messages that are not really mine. I, I probably think you feel the same, you know, it's either we, we learned this from someone else or, you know, it's being sent through you to someone else. And I don't know. I, I think that feeling of responsibility, I take it seriously, very seriously. I still believe it or not, sir. I still answer every single mess. I mean, no, I can't say every single message, but probably 98% of all the messages I get on social media. It's a nightmare of a job. I swear to you, but I absolutely love it. And I don't think of it as, as a burden. I just simply say, oh my God, someone wants to talk to me, that's such a privilege, right? It's quite interesting when you think about it. But then your approach was quite refreshing, I have to say, right? So if you don't mind me saying, being queer and being very open about it, being so flamboyant and artistic, I mean, the first time we met, I was like, oh my God, like this guy, like, look at this, right? And we're talking about deep Buddhist topics and artificial intelligence. And you're like totally, totally colorful and wonderful and laughing. And it's, it's just amazing. And I think, I think something caught up there. Like people were like, yeah, I can follow that guru. I like that guru. Right? <laughs> Did you feel that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I think that, thank you for naming that and for celebrating that. Yes, all of that. And I just want to say like the responsibility piece is just to make sure that I'm, that I am like, genuinely keeping my heart and my mind and my body and my words and my actions in the right place, really like constantly in that orientation of like what we say in the, in the Mahayana Vajrayana Buddhist path, the Bodhisattva path, like how can my life be of service to other people? Every, every orientation of my inner and outer world be of service to others and taking that vow really kind of like, it's a it's a heavy lift and a big sort of oh, yeah. thing to carry, you know. So that's the responsibility. It's just kind of 
keep doing that because some, sometimes, you know, I, I kind of just want to veg out and just, you know, do nothing or look at other people doing different things <laughs> no. with their lives. And I'm like, wow, remember when I used to get like drunk and high at the club? <laughs> Oh, wow. I miss that. I miss just like being like a mess in that way, you know? And then I'm like, okay, I have a different mission in life. It's, so the responsibility is just like that constantly remembering to remember that I, this life I have devoted to helping others while helping myself to truly become free. So it's, it's a, it's a big lift that you understand. And, you know, to go back to the, to kind of like, I just wanted to point that out. So the, the queerness, I think it's a big thing because when I was, it's a big thing to, to see people uh, celebrating this sort of path that we're, this community that we're creating together. Because, you know, when I was at those early years in India, I was trying to be, be like everybody else. I was very like, namaste and you know, <laughs> something was beautiful and i was like oh that's beautiful something was sad i was like oh that's sad it was like there was not a lot of um i wasn't very expressed i wasn't very alive in the ways that i that i am alive today and i you know that i've been for a while because i was afraid that that was not acceptable in the in the spiritual space i felt like i needed to do the things that people were doing in order for me to fit in essentially the same thing i did before trying to like play yes. into the normalcy of society and and kind of pass as as heteronormative and all the things that queer people have to do now i was doing it in the spiritual space like how could i pass as normal so people would uh, and i did air quotes for everybody who's listening how can i pass as normal because there's nothing or there's no one who is normal normal is you know yeah, as gabriel well says it's yeah. a myth right yeah um so essentially what I'm saying is I, it took a while for me to like unleash my own true authentic self. It took a while for me to like celebrate my wildness, my queerness, my flamboyantness, my true inner artist. It took a minute for me to arrive at this place where I'm like, this is who I am. I am talking about deep things in a, in a, in a, in a playful way. And that's my brand of liberation. Like it or not, that's what I'm doing with my little corner of the world. But it was a lot of pushback. A lot of these holy places, a lot of these ashrams and monasteries and people, I write about this in my work too, having been like humiliated, you know, at a, at a Dharma center in Bodhgaya. Oh, serious? In, yeah. It's like people are afraid of, of authenticity. It, it just triggers their, their inauthenticity. It triggers all the ways that they're not living out their truth, you know? So when I walk into a place and I'm being, I'm living out my truth, my expression, my queerness, my artistry, it shines a light and all the stuff that they're not willing to look at. So it became this thing in, in these holy places. So that was initially, I was like, oh shit, I shouldn't do this. I should stop. I should try to like fit in more. And then I was like, no, imagine all the young queer people of color who are looking up, who are yes. wishing that they could arrive at these places and see someone that they felt represented in or yes. to listen to a dharma that they can find themselves in. You know, historically, the dharma that has reached the West, or even when you go out to the East, a lot of the dharma centers are packed with, uh, you know, heterosis white people. So it, it's a very sort of, we have to realize that the Buddha was a brown man, and it's a it's a lineage of, the, of, of historically uh, brown people. And in the West, we have sort of whitewashed it. And through a lot of good 
has come from from you know westernizing it and and the bravery of the white folks who went who ventured into India and Nepal to study this and also we have to then teach a dharma that's way more inclusive than the ones that have been than the dharma that's been taught before by mostly uh, white folks in the last uh, few decades so my work is is to really just queerify the dharma and like make it more playful and artful and keep the depth of it obviously and the profundity of it too but it, it has to be delivered in a way that people like i was the person that i was young seeker can hear and can relate to and not feel alienated and and feel like okay here i am running away from christianity and now, now i'm finding a punitive god in all these people like here I'm running away from this punitive approach to liberation, aka, you know, this God that punishes into the Buddhist path. But now instead of having a, a punitive God, I'm seeing that punitive God expressed in all these people who are saying that they're holy and saying that they're practitioners. So that's it. This is where I'm at. It's that expression. I, I love you for that. I have to say, I absolutely adore you for doing this. I think religion goes wrong at two levels, right? One One level is they sort of try to build a mold for, for someone and say that someone is simply the way we want you to look, the way we want you to behave. And if you're not behaving that way, then good luck. You're not one of the, the, of the crew. You're gonna either burn in hell or you're gonna end up with a lot of bad karma, right? And I, I don't believe that to be true at all. You know, I had, I had a conversation once without sharing names with a, a Muslim imam, so, you know, like a scholar. And he, he came to me and said, I can't go back to my home country, I can't. And I said, why, what happened? And he said, I'm supposed to teach the Quran there. People pray behind me and I'm an imam and a leader and so on. And I suddenly realized that I like men. And I was like, it was the first time I was given this as a conversation and I said, you know, in my immediate heart, I was like, and what's wrong with that? And he said, Islam doesn't approve of this. And I said, but it also doesn't approve of lying. It also doesn't approve of usury and so on and so forth. And everyone who will ever judge you is doing one of those things, right? And by the way, those things are actually wrong. Hmm? Uh, they hurt others right? You have a choice in life to tell yourself, do I want to lose my entire connection with my spirituality because I, you know, I feel a certain way or do I also want to be spiritual when I feel that way, right? And then, you know, the second thing that religion sometimes does is it says, and by the way, if you're that person, okay, you can't even talk about spirituality anymore because you don't represent us. And I'm like, is this a football team? Like, what are we talking about here? There are so many people. I mean, statistically, I don't know the numbers. Of course, it's very hard to measure. But, you know, we're talking about a good portion of humanity today that makes that choice, right? So what? Do we prevent them from talking about spirituality? If we ask them to talk about spirituality, they'll reach others who want to listen to them. Like, why are we preventing people from doing that? Why is it that we can take one point of life and say, look, if you, if you wear a yellow jacket, you're not part of the team. What, where did that come from? And I actually, one of the things that I really enjoyed the first time we met is 
you're wearing the yellow jacket quite proudly. It's like, you know what? And I know my dharma. I know what I'm talking about, right? And I can make people feel better. And you know what? I can make people that you will never reach feel better, okay? That's so eye-opening. And I think that's really where the change should start to come in. Mm-hmm. Thank you for naming that. That's so sweet. <laughs> it is the truth, man. It is the yeah. truth. Our world has so many wrong things. It's nice to hear. You have, you know, you have a lot of people listening to you and you have a lot of influence and that comes with the responsibility. And I and, and thank you for celebrating my little corner of the of the world. We have to celebrate when things are in alignment with the highest good of all beings. I think we're in the world right now where I mean, looking at American news it's oh my god i am like it's so hard to just have a good day it's just <laughs> it's crazy. an ongoing nightmare of things happening and then i'm just uh, it's amazing to me amazing I'm being simplistic and really like sweet about it it's like devastating you know like i work at a, at a homeless shelter um here in venice uh, california in venice beach in in la and you know, just seeing the the severity of their situation and neighbors wanting to push them out of the of the space of the neighborhood because Venice has become this like fancy shishi uh, neighborhood where everyone you know is five thousand dollars for a one bedroom apartment now. So we, and then the in this area of Venice they have this like really you know massive parking lot that's turned into this. Um, uh, living quarters for people who are unhoused and just seeing the kind of struggles that they that community goes through to keep that place going everyone who's marginalized i feel like it's it's heightened we're in a time where things are heightened it's like there's more light and resources and potential and it's also the 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 shadow the darkness is being exposed in such a you know massive ways that it's really hard to like go through a day where you're like, okay, cool. Today was sincerely a good day all around. It's like saying that is so selfish, right? Because when we when we tune into the pain of the world, when we tune into the pain of being human, we look at the pain that's around the corner. And now I'm going a little bit of a rant here, but just hear me out for a second. This is something that I've been talking to a lot of different spiritual teachers come on on my podcast talking about self-care and personal development and feeling better about yourself and achieving your dreams. And I'm like, F all of that. If your spiritual practices and your self-care practices are not leading you to become an activist, then it's there not spiritual. Go. It's not spiritual at all, my dear. Personal development and spirituality, there's a big line in the middle. Personal development is about me, mine, and I. Spirituality is about we. How can we do better, feel better, create a better world? So I'm just in this other season of my life with my mom's death where I have no tolerance for people talking about manifestation and my life and my needs and me, 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 me. I'm like, enough. Look at every single genuine ancient scripture. The common denominator in all of it is compassion. What does that mean? Care for yourself or care for others. Care for others or care for yourself. Lift someone else that will help to lift yourself. And people don't want to hear that because we want the pity party. We want to stay intoxicated in our own in our own spiral. And I, I can only say this with the audacity that I have to say right now because I've been there. I have wanted to unalive myself for a long time. I have been an addict. I have experienced depression. I've experienced anxiety. I've experienced the depth of the valley of shadows 
I've been there. And through the work of being there, you learn to see in the dark. Your eyes reacclimate and you start to be able to see, you know, that it isn't as dark as we thought it was. It might just be a little shoelace on the in the corner. It's not a snake. That kind of thing starts to be a revelations that we have on the path. And then when we have these revelations, if you're not helping other people have these revelations, it's not the spiritual path. I'm sorry. And I, I, I'm i just constantly saying that. And I have Zen teachers come on the show and they're very diplomatic, right? They're very diplomatic and they're very, um, <laughs> they they're very, and I'm like, I'm not diplomatic. I'm just tired of the diplomacy that we're going about liberation is not working. It's doing harm for a lot of people. And it's keeping people with a lot of privilege and a lot of resources feeling okay about keeping all the resources to themselves when that is not spiritual period you know i don't know another ways to say it but anyways whatever you said prompted me to say this and and there it is lay laid it out it's the biggest issue of our planet honestly it really is there was a, a study once that you know in islam here in the middle east people are supposed to pay two and a half percent in charity every year Two and a half percent of whatever you saved. So whatever you didn't use for a year, it's not your income. But if you had money in a bank and you, you know, or jewelry or whatever, and you didn't use it for a year, you pay two and a half percent of that in charity. And there was a brave person that once said, well, I did a calculation. And if every uh, rich Muslim paid two and a half percent of their savings as a charity, there wouldn't be a single hungry person on earth. Right? And here's the question. The question is, honestly, Sa, I mean, if I told you it's gonna cost you two and a half percent of your money next year to polish your shoes, right? Most people will say, yeah, no problem. Or to put my stuff in laundry or whatever. Yeah, I'll do that. You know, people don't think that big of of two and a half percent, right? And yet when it comes to help others, like just seriously, seriously, just take one or two percent of your savings, not of your income, and just give those away. Most people will go like, hold on, hold on. They got themselves into this. They are the reason why they're homeless. They, what difference does it make? Seriously, I very often actually sometimes when people go into debate with me, I go like, okay, keep everything you want. I just want you to spend one night in January on the streets of New York, homeless. One night, okay? And when you're done with that and you've had the experience, if you don't feel the compassion, I don't know what you are, you must be a rock, but, but honestly, what ha what's happening in our world is that the single idea of me, 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 and I need to be better than my neighbor, it's not I need my neighbor to catch up. And it's so interesting, so interesting how our world is ending because of that. It's really awful. And thank you for speaking to that. And thank you for giving me the, the opportunity to speak to that too. I think um, I think we really have to... What would you ask people to do if people listening to us nod and say, yeah, this is something that I should pay more attention to? I think I, I love the donating of the resources and I think that's wonderful. And I also need a nervous system upgrade from people. I need a mindset upgrade from people. I need a somatic up level from people, which means none of that was going to happen if you just send in a check. None of this is going to happen if you just put in your credit card and press enter to that charity, that organization. None of it will happen. You're going to talk about it at the dinner party later today to get some looks and some like, oh, good job. I'm so glad you did that. Or your partner may be happy for you. But that's not giving 
the somatic upgrade that we need. It's not the spiritual upgrade that you need in the world needs. That will only happen when you put your life in the line, which means go sign up to volunteer. Go put your body in the line. Go get a nervous system upgrade. Go be around people in extreme despair and see what happens inside of you. Do you revert to a punitive mindset, which is very natural, very, it's a very natural thing to happen. Like, oh my God, this person, these people are, are this and that, like they, they shouldn't be allowed to this, like the, the punitive approach, right? Or do you feel completely scared that your life is yes. more important than theirs? Or do you just completely shut down and run away? All the, the sort of normal fight, flight or freeze approaches that we have towards all kinds of random things. If you truly want to get a glimpse of God, liberation, enlightenment, transformation, go put yourself on the line, go be of service, you know, and it's a variety of different ways. You can pack up granola bars in your bag and just hand them out to the neighbors that who, who live on the street, or you can actually sign up to do a, a two to three hour training and get your, your fingerprint scanned. So to see what kind of, it's a little bit of a process, right? To actually volunteer in an institution, uh, but do it or cook a meal. Me and my partner, we're not doing that right now. You know, Ben is traveling, I was traveling, but cooking a big tray of mac and cheese and bringing to the community in a skid row. So there's so many ways. There's 42,000 42, people unhoused in Los Angeles. That's insanity. That's insanity. You know, that's like, it's really like, it, it just, it's heartbreaking that we're turning a blind eye to to human beings. Freedom is relational. Like we have to understand that unless we're all free, we're not free. So if you don't put yourself on the line and different schools of Buddhism say different things about that. But again, I practice Mahayana Vajrayana, which is a little different, which means that unless we help others get free, we're not essentially going to unlock our true uh, potential for our own uh, freedom. And there's discussions on that, but that's my view. That's how I'm digesting the Dharma. That's how I am speaking about it. So my ask for everybody would be to go be of service, go offer your time to those in need. And you're going to be surprised. That's going to be the biggest antidepressant dose that you've ever taken. Like literally if you, and I'm not, I'm not demonizing medicine. I love medicine. My mom was in chemotherapy and also doing all the holistic treatments that we, we could find. I'm all for it. And also we need to know that there are so many ways to find freedom, to, to get free while helping other people to get free too. You know, it's service, service across every religion, across every mystical path. It's, it's service that will lead you there. 100%. So, so we haven't even started talking about your work yet. So let, let's just jump in. Um, <laughs> so so you, you created the SA method, the Somatic Activated Healing. What is that? Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. So the SA method came, was born out of, um, the way it was born was, I mean, what is it? It's not, I would just give you the background story just, just for context a little bit. I would do mantras, meditate, do breath work, and then I would dance and I would put the dance video on social media. And a lot of people would be like, oh my God, I'm coming alive just watching you. Something is happening as just as I watch you. And then I, I wasn't really realizing that at that point, there was like all these prerequisites or precursor to the dance. I would do my prayers, my mantra, my meditation, my breath work before I dance. So I was like, oh, interesting. All of these practices together are what the somatic activated healing method is. 
So long story short, I'm putting these videos out there and then I get a message from Deepak Chopra's CEO in 2019. Yes, 2019. And they invite me to their office and they're like, can you teach this? And I was like, teach this? Like, I'm not teaching anything here. I'm just like expressing my own freedom, expressing myself here. But we want that. Can you do that? And I was like, oh, okay, maybe let me think about it. So then I have like maybe a few months before I'm on stage next to Deepak, who I've like looked up to. And I'm like, oh my God, like if you know a name in a spiritual space, most people know Oprah Winfrey and Deepak Chopra. So I was like, whoa, epic. So I prepare what I thought was the method. Little did I know it was going to become this like very structured, very sort of a, this very um, specific equation for, for healing, uh, which is now known as the somatic activated healing method. Back then it was dense medicine. Back then it was like the SA method, but the, the letters had no, they didn't mean anything. The SA wasn't, the S wasn't for somatic, the A wasn't for activated and the H wasn't for healing, but there's just like, here's my method. I'm just putting together these four practices that have historically, factually helped people across culture to become better versions of themselves. And I'm just putting them all together in this specific way. There's nothing new. What's new is just me putting them together in this specific way. These practices have research behind all of them to help. So fast forward, I keep, I, I'm teaching it on Chopra's Global's Instagram account on IG Live every Friday for a year and a half. Oh, wow. And that built this like momentum. And I really started to like learn what is that I'm doing? What is this practice actually doing for people? And I started to then create the, the sort of philosophy and, and equation behind a method, which essentially is teaching people to be in their bodies, to come home to their bodies, to get out of their heads and get back into their bodies. To The premise of it is that it's there is a, a top-down approach to healing and a bottom-up approach to healing, right? And I'm being simplistic here, but a lot of people are adopted the bottom, the top-down, which is talk to your therapist, speak about your suffering, talk about it. And by talking about it, you're going to change how you feel. And therefore, if you change how you feel, you're going to change how you think. Therefore, you're going to change how you speak and how you act. Wonderful. That works. But also, if you talk to therapists, um, a lot of therapists right now, and there's a lot of research that shows where therapy and somatic work begins, where therapy ends, it's where we have to then go into the body and work with the feelings. Because a lot of times by talking about our suffering and talking about our stories, we are activating these memories and these memories have a lot of, uh, a lot of emotional charge attached to them. So unless your therapist is giving you the exact tools to do somatic work, meaning be with the feelings, process the feelings, let go of the feelings. You're walking out of the, of the therapy room feeling like you have a change of perspective linguistically, conceptually, a change of perspective, but the change hasn't happened somatically. hasn't It's not lived in the body. So you're kind of goes away for a little bit and then it kind of like resurfaces again. And then next thing you know, you're you're back with those same feelings, the same stories, the same memories still have that charge. So that's the top-down approach. Now, the bottom-up approach, it's a somatic approach. It's what we're doing this in the SAM method, which means we're not engaging stories whatsoever, which, which the premise is that we don't have to remember what happened to us or what we did in order for us to heal. The result of trauma is yes. in our bodies, is in the present moment right here, right now. We don't have to remember exactly what happened which means that stories are not needed. What's needed is, is an awareness of what's going on in the body, simple practice. 
So when teachers who are now being certified in this method are practicing, it's when you're working one-on-one with clients or in, or one-on-one with clients, that's when that kind of context happens. We're only getting a kind of like newspaper clipping of the, someone's story, never a storifying or, or allowing them to go into that place because the weight of the past is still in the present if you haven't processed it. So the, the premise of the work is to get people to track and trace and be with the feelings in their bodies as they arise. And through the, the breath, the, the affirmations or the mantras, the meditation and the specific moves that I've created, we are creating a um, kind of a, a gateway for feelings to come up and go out. You know, so looking at like research, there's research that shows that we have, you know, way more emotions that I'm about to say, but based on research from the, the Center for, for Greater Good, the Science Center for Greater Good, maybe I'm saying it wrong, but this is the one out of Berkeley that I love what they're doing there. They said that we have an average 27 emotions every human being has. So I pared down the 27 to 20 and I created specific moves for those 20 emotions, 10 of them being shadow emotions, 10 of them being light emotions, the bottom of it being shame and the top of it being enlightenment. And this is also based on the emotional guidance scale. I forgot the amazing dude who created that. So I I have developed on specific things that have existed into creating this these moves. So each of the moves are here to help people to activate those unprocessed feelings, those unmet feelings, and create the, the pathway for them to come up and out. So the SA method is, is that. It's a way for people to be in their bodies no matter what's going on and to remind people that that you know the way to heal is to not storify or conceptualize or think your way out of your suffering is to process the feelings because when you process the feelings that are in your body your memories which is the reason why you don't consider yourself healing or healed or or better because they're haunting you still and why is a memory haunt you because it has emotional charge when a memory comes up and passes by like every other thought in your mind without an emotional charge, that's the work of the method that we're doing is to process the emotional charge associated with these hurtful, painful memories that we have. So the entire journey is to just let go of these feelings. They're not necessarily associated with the specific emotions, specific uh, memories. And by processing these feelings, you're then changing your relationship with those emotions. Therefore, you're becoming more, more present. Therefore, you can, you can, you know, hear the world and through your heart, not through your, you know, neurosis, you can speak to the world without the poisonous uh, tongue that you may have had in the past, but speak from the heart. You can see the world without the polarized dualistic view that you've had, but now you can, you can see the world through the eyes of, of love, through the eyes of the heart. So that's a very simple way of explaining what the method is, but that's essentially helping people to just be in their bodies and stop stop escaping the present moment because yeah. we have been trained and colonized and indoctrinated and really we've become prolific at multitasking because it's a trauma response that helps us to stay out of our bodies meaning stay out of feeling yeah which is very safe but no healing comes from safety in this way of course we need to enter safe environments to heal but the kind of healing that we're talking about here requires you to step out of what you deem comfortable and safe, which means you're going to have to feel some shit that is not pleasant. So that's a little bit of it. I hope that makes sense. Even the movement bit, I mean, the dance bit, it has lots of references in 
in spiritual teachings, like the whirling of the dervishes or the ecstatic dance of, uh, of the shamanic sides and so on. You know, there seems to be, as you rightly said, there is evidence that this works as a spiritual practice, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's all there. I mean, I the only thing that I have done is is kind of created some like language that feels a little new, but nothing is new under the sun. And that's something that I'm kind of like tired of it is sometimes, you know, I was driving to meet uh, Peggy and Jolene, the director of the His Holiness the Dalai Lama's and Archbishop's Desmond Tutu's documentary, Mission Joy, driving to their house the other day. And I was just like drinking a matcha latte and like listening to Gregorian chants, which is what I love to listen to when I'm driving. Very Catholic of me, <laughs> which is beautiful. They're beautiful songs. They're beautiful yeah. hymns. They really touch me in a deep way. But as I was driving, I was like, why do I feel the need to teach my own brand of compassion? Why do I have this desperate need to teach my own brand of liberation? Why am I so hung up on it? And it's so the opposite of emptiness. It's all the opposite of interconnectedness. It's all the opposite of, of the true path of liberation, according to, to the Buddhist view. And I'm still doing it, you know? So it's this <laughs> kind of like weird thing that I'm like, why am I doing it? But then I have to do it because other people, because we need queer Dharma teachers. We need queer spiritual teachers. We need my version of it is working. So it's this, it's this paradox where like, I'm so over this, thing that I have to do my way because it doesn't exist, but it, it, it already exists. You know, it's already, it has already existed. So anyways, it's, I'm in a, I'm in a, I'm in a thing. I'm in a pickle. It's an existential pickle where gotta keep going. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm helping people to get free and I'm getting free and also just questioning it. So I, I struggled with that myself. I mean, first of all, it's so humble of you to keep saying it's always been there. It's always been there. If, if you're the source of it and it's helping people, then it's there because of you, right? That's the truth, right? I struggled with this myself for quite a long time. As a matter of fact, I avoided social media very heavily until 2019, I think. I had 3,000 followers on, uh, on Instagram. And I had 80,000 followers on LinkedIn, but that's because of my corporate career, right, at the time. And, and I insisted that I didn't want to be out there at all. And my team would really push me. It's like, Mo, every movement needs a face, right? Humans don't want a piece of paper that has four words written on it. They want to know who said it and why they said it. And they want to see an example in them. And I still, like you, I really struggle. I really struggle because in my mind, what I teach is just common wisdom, really. It's like, yeah, I may have added a few little discoveries of my own here and there. And by the way, every now and then I, you know, I, I discover that one thing that I thought was my discovery is, you know, available in this teaching or that teaching or that the Stoics have done it before. It, it doesn't seem to be new, right? And yet, yet you somehow have to put yourself out there. And as you put yourself out there, it's quite interesting because specifically for you, Sa, I think what, what ends up happening is people relate to you before they relate to the teaching, which I think is necessary, really. And I got to keep the lights on, you know, and I have a lot of adults <laughs> who rely on me financially. So I got to keep going, you know, keep older going. people who really don't have the means and the energy and the vitality that I have right now to keep going. 
and yeah. I have to keep my lights on, their lights on. So yeah. it's, it's a, a big responsibility. Back to responsibility, Mr. De Simon. Yeah. Uh, back to the responsibility. That's I, right. I believe That's it right. or not, I struggled with that myself. Again, I mean, not for a public conversation, but I have a lot of promises to people who may not have life as easy as I had my life that, you know, next month will be okay, right? And for a very long time, you know, when I go on my silent retreats and so on, I tell myself, how can you do this? You know, you should be out there, you should be working, you should be doing something, you could get, you know, a few thousand more and that would help more people. And then somehow there was a point at which where I said, do you actually think you're making that money? You know, that money comes to your bank account with someone else's name on it. I actually had a very, a wonderful conversation with my mom around this because my mom, I call her my business manager. So she manages all of my giving effort, basically. Anything that goes for good is basically her work, which I think is the most beautiful partnership we ever had is that she's constantly using whatever I'm blessed with to, to help others. And every now and then she would text me on WhatsApp or call me and say, Habibi, I'm gonna spend this much or I'm gonna do that thing. And I, I'm like, mom, why are you asking me? She says, it's your money. And I'm like, no, it's not. If it landed in your account, it has someone else's name on it, okay? And it's a very interesting way, by the way, when you know how in, in financial services, when people say, pay yourself first, so sorry, financial uh, planning, they basically say, take some of your money and put it in a savings account before you start spending for the month. And I realized at a very early point in my life that if you take a little bit of your money and give it to a charity account before you even spend it, or think about spending it, the rest of the money is more than enough. It's quite interesting, huh? So you can get $1,000 into your account and then spend $1,000 and at the end of the month, you're out of dollars, or you can get $1,000, send a hundred of them to a charity account. And then basically at the end of the month, you'll spend 900 and you won't even feel the difference. It's quite an interesting way of doing it. But, but somehow it's not a responsibility. It is, I mean, to me, I think I push back because I feel the same feelings you feel. But I keep reminding myself, no, 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 it's a blessing that I am given the opportunity to be able to express my compassion. But if I, you know, I'm in a wheelchair tomorrow and I cannot do anything, I don't feel bad that I am not doing it anymore. I was just doing it by accepting the gift. Tell me a bit, I mean, finally, Finally, we're going to talk about your book, the second book, right? Finally, which is out now. Uh, I haven't had the chance to read it. The title is fantastic. <laughs> you know, so you, spiritually sassy. And it's, it is a very um, systemic way. So it's eight ways to activate or eight steps to, to activate the super, your superpower, okay? Eight is very, very methodic here. This is not the sigh, no. It's like, okay... You know, let's have bullet points and be very accurate. Yeah, no art here. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Tell me a bit about it. Why did you write it and why do you think it's different? Well, well, thank you for, for bringing that up. The reason why I wrote it was out of this 
out of that feeling and that experience that I had to like keep fighting my my way into these holy places and I had to like fight my way into every table that I wanted to be at. And I said, enough fighting to get a sit at the table. Why don't I just build my own table over here? <laughs> like, and I, you know, put it next to theirs and here's our table and everyone's welcome, you know? So that was it. Spiritually sassy is that. It's saying that we don't have to keep fighting our way into, into the perceived uh, version of spirituality we can create our own version of it which is still you know filled with levity and and profundity and it's obviously playful and humorous but so spiritually sassy is that it's a it's a light-hearted approach to to liberation to freedom we go through um you know several different practices and several different yeah it's 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 a practice book so it's got a lot of self inventory self-analysis uh, accountability and um, and on the last chapter, it's about your expression in the world. It's about people not thinking that they have to become a spiritual teacher or a meditation teacher or a wellness writer or whatever it may be or start a charity or open a hospital. They can do what they're doing as long as they are in touch with their hearts, which means that they have done a lot of uh, self-revelation work, self-analysis work, but their expression in the world is coming from that genuine place, from that selfless place. And, and I believe if, if people do things from that place, if you are a jewelry maker or you're, you're making food or you're making, or you're building a home, whatever it may be, I think there is a sort of this energetic exchange that happens. If you are a jewelry maker and you make a beautiful earring from that, that place of like, may this be of benefit to, to the world, may this uh, inspire the world and let this be like a, a reminder a symbol for liberation, for happiness, for joy, for what's possible for people. When someone wears it and that earring has infused that kind of uh, intention, I believe it can unlock symbolically for other people who are looking at it, this potential, this gateway, this path for others. So I emphasize that a lot in the book. And one part of the book that I want to speak about too was the chapter that I wrote that was what sold the book to Sounds True. The publishers really loved it was talking about forgiveness. I think a lot of people are very afraid of that of that and are very sort of shy away from it. And it's such a misunderstood practice. So in uh, I think it's chapter four, I speak about the how vital it is for you to learn to, you know, forgive as if you really want to advance spiritually and and on your, you know, just if you want to like be more at home in your body and more at home in your life, you gotta make peace with your past. So it's um I guide people in this like writing ritual for them to write these letters. And and I think a lot of people think about forgiveness. Um, this is one thing I'm going to say is I think a lot of people think about forgiveness as something to do with between you and the other person, the ones that you've hurt or the ones who've hurt you. But the ways I speak about it, it's a process between you and you, meaning your mind, your body, your heart and your past and your perception of it making peace with that. Uh, so it, there is this energetic shift that happens on a, on a, on a field that we don't have access to see with our eyes, but maybe you can speak about that field. Uh, it's very, <laughs> it's very on brand for you to talk about that field, but, but I guess they call it quantum field or I don't know something, but yeah, I say that once we have a revelation between from our side, it is on this field where I've seen many times happen where I have people in retreats or in my own life when I have forgiven myself for the ways I've harmed another person or I have forgiven someone else for the ways they've har harmed me. And then, you know, months or years or a week or a few days go by and I get a point of contact from that person, yeah. you know, 
and so forgiveness is key in the book that's a halfway it's at the halfway mark because for you to go to the next levels and the next things you got to do that deep um work of of saying stop to the cycle of harm stop to the cycle of pain um and then reminding yourself and others that what you've done um isn't who you are at the base of your being the truly good man was on my podcast a couple of days ago and she says there's a lot of things that people do that are unforgivable but no person is unforgivable what they do is unforgivable well who they are is not unforgivable so that working with that view where like guilt shows us that we feel bad about our actions and shame shows us that we feel bad about who we are so in that chapter we're kind of dismantling this guilt and shame idea that our actions are not who we are at the base of our being our mistakes are not who we are at the base of our being so kind of dismantling that for people um and helping people to just like um really name their pain and name their struggles and name their guilt and through that process they can um you know have a revelation so that's a little something about the book that's a lot of things about the book <laughs> yes i'm saying a lot of something because it's like 15 minutes of me talking about it you know it's no, like no, a no, no. I year mean, that, long process that, that in itself requires a full podcast i believe and it's it's quite timely i think with your journey of healing for this year i think that's definitely something that it's interesting how the world how how life works sometimes huh? life gets you to uh, to a point where you uh where you have that tool, you know, I, in the Middle Eastern religious view, basically, um, actually more, more in Islam, I think you, you, it's said that it, that you are never tasked with a task that you're not capable of. Okay. That you, you get, you get the task. It's a little stretching. It's not in your comfort zone, but you can. If you stretch yourself, you'll get there and the tools will be there for you. And so in your case, the tools have been written by you. So there you go. There you go, my dear friend. Do the work. Yeah, do, do the, the work. work. Read your own book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's quite interesting for me how that journey never stops, really. It's quite interesting because now I'm old, you know, and I still sit with myself literally on a weekly basis and say, oh my God, I did not know that about me, right? Oh my God, I need to do this work. Oh my God, you know. And, and it's, of course, you know, those things are still big in magnitude, you know, compared to how far I've come, you know, with, with where I am right now, they're still significant, but... In the past, I would have never uncovered the need for them because I had other work to do. And, you know, I'm in a very good place, but hey, wouldn't it be amazing if I did this as well, or if I learned that as well, or if I managed to flow with this a little better and so on. I don't want to take more of your time. I think this was such a wonderful conversation. You constantly reaffirm how much I love you. You're such a wonderful human being. And you're so open and genuine and authentic and fun to be around. It's just easy, honestly. You know, you make it look like, yeah, we can, we can all do this. It's not that difficult. And I think that's really what's inspiring about what you do. I always close with one question, your secret to happiness. Do you have a secret to happiness? Oh my goodness. My secret to happiness. Wow. Do I have a secret? No, I don't have a secret. I mean, 
what I do have is these days, it's like, I choose to be in my body. I choose to remind myself to be in my body. And it's really hard to be present in your body. It could be, it could be excruciating to be present and tell me about it. Aware of it. Wow, I'm alive. I'm in this body. So that's my secret to happiness. It's like stay in your body, even if it feels like a hell realm. And freedom will come from that. That's a very big one, believe it or not. Less spoken about because I think most of our teachers are not even that good at it. Or many of our teachers are not even that good at it. I definitely am not the best at it, I'll tell you. Openly. How old are you, Mo? I'm now, are we going to say this publicly in front of all my listeners? Is that okay? Anyway, I'm sorry. I just, I'm always <laughs> curious. It's, no, no, it's I want to age and be, you know, I just... I'm curious and I want to have you back on my show to ask you so many things about life. And you said, I'm old now. You named it. So then I'm, I'm taking the invitation to ask you. That's why. I'm not physically old at all. So I'm 56, right? I'm not physically old at all. I feel 34. Okay. And people who are close to me f say, oh no, you're a lot better than 34. Right. I'm not old in my mind at all. Okay. You're not. I'm very, very liberal and very open and very childish and playful and silly. I'm really silly. Like I'm really silly. Don't say that to people who are listening to us on the podcast. People, I didn't say I'm silly. I'm very wise. No, but, but truly, I mean, I think that some of the, of the wisest people I've ever met, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, for example, their, 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 their inner child is very alive. But I will tell you openly, sir, I feel I have lived so much so much. It's quite something, actually. I feel mm -hmm. I lived in this life alone, probably 70 lives. And, and actually more and more and more, I, I have seen so many experiences. I have seen every kind of pain, every kind of joy, every kind of uncertainty. And so there is a very unusual feeling of age in me. I, I feel several hundred years old. Mm -hmm. It's a very unusual feeling. And I'm start, it's starting to dawn on me more and more and more because very rarely is there anything that feels new, okay? And it's a very unusual place to be. Of course, the, the curiosity is still there. I'm very, very curious. Hmm? But yeah, it, it just, I, I think, I think I'm so present in those lives as well that I remember every single one of them so clearly that it feels like several lifetimes. It's a very unusual feeling. And, and it's been oh. dawning on me more and more in the last couple of years. It's not a health issue. It's not an age, you know, age is not slowing me down at all. As a matter of fact, I'm extremely fast. I just feel that I've lived so much mm -hmm. it's very strange mm -hmm. but it's also very interesting that you ask about what it's like to be aging because i remember vividly i was 42 when i went to my mom and i said mom why didn't you tell me that all of this was going to happen you know there is a certain pattern to life huh? especially when you're in love and at work and in family and so on we think that all of our lives are different but there are very global patterns that we all repeat and I said, you knew this was going to happen. You knew this, you know, that I was going to work really hard and I was going to be successful and then it was going to feel empty. Why didn't you tell me beforehand? 
And she, you know, in a very typical mom way, she said, <laughs> she said, and, and where would the fun be? I was like, uh, who wants the fun? Like, I, want, I wanted to cut, you know, shortcut those, you know, learnings. And she was spot on, actually, that, yeah, the fun is in living it. It is experiencing it and feeling it, even if it's painful. That's where the fun is. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for saying all that. I really appreciate it. And I'm just going to reflect one thing and then uh, we'll go. I love the, I feel like I've seen it all and I'm also still curious. That oh, is yeah. so profound. So thank you. Because that is a lot of people are hung up on. I've seen it all. Bye. I'm jaded. Now, what you said in the oh, no, same no, breath, no, no. in the same sentence, I've seen it all and I'm still curious. That is so deep. And we could spend a whole another hour just talking about that because that paradox is profound. It, is, it really is what life is about. We know nothing at all, sir. We've seen nothing at all, right? There has never been an experience that you lived twice, ever, okay? Even though they seem the same. Oh, I dated the same kind of person mm -hmm. and she did the same thing. No, not at all. You were a different person. She was not exactly the same. The experience was totally different. Only if you pay attention, right? Mm -hmm. Only if you're deep enough to actually recognize what's happening. Every meal has its own subtleties. Every, you know, every time you listen to your favorite song, it's, it's playing on Spotify, the same exact song, but it's not the same because it's mixed with your emotions and your, uh, your, your current, you know, state and the temperature of the room and the time of the day and your memory. It's never the same. And you can savor every single one of them. It's absolutely mind-blowing how rich this life can be mm -hmm. wow i love thank you. you i love I you really too do. thank you so much i oh think you're goodness. an amazing human being i'm very very grateful that you came to join me and i would love 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 for us to keep the conversation you're such a wonderful human thank you same i appreciate you so much thank you so much thank you and for all of you listening uh i hope you felt this i ignored you this time. I, I didn't have you in mind. I wasn't talking to Sa for you to listen to his wisdom. I was talking to Sa because this is someone that I truly admired the first time I met. And I just wanted to get to know him. And you happen to have been on the other side of the camera. I hope you enjoyed getting to know him as much as I did. What a wonderful human being. I hope that you learned in your heart that there is no specific mold that we need to fit in to be spiritual. There is no specific mold that we need to be uh, to fit in to teach someone something. As a matter of fact, for most of us, there is one thing or a few things that are super unique about us. And if we live them fully, then we can help our world. I would ask all of you to find the compassion in your hearts to send wonderful positive energies for my friend here. Uh, you don't understand what it's like unless you've lost someone uh, that you love dearly. So uh, I, uh, I will ask all of you to send him positive energy, to heal, to send him positive wishes, to send him positive prayers. This is the least of your compassion, is to wish in your heart that another person goes through his journey with ease. Whatever you, it is that you're doing this week, I will remind you one more time that life is lived a lot better when you slow down every now and again. 
So whatever it is that you're doing, regardless of how busy you are this week, find a tiny bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.